Psalm 107, 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are awesome and amazing. And Lord, when we see you for who you are and for what you have done for us and all that you are for us in your son, Jesus, we will be a thankful people. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would work this into us, Lord, grace upon grace upon grace, that we would be awakened to joy in Christ, which would then overflow with hearts and lips and lives of thanksgiving. All of this for your glory alone, that you would be praised and honored and that it would demonstrate that we are truly happy in you. So Lord, I pray that you would enable me to speak clearly. But more than that, I pray your Holy Spirit would be here and be our teacher and give us understanding and open up the eyes of our hearts that we would see wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. At a very young age, almost every child is taught to say thank you, right? Thank you for dinner. Thank you for snack. Thank you for help. Thank you for that birthday gift or Christmas gift. And even strangely, thank you for broccoli, It's right and good. We should teach our kids to say the words, thank you. I'm sorry. Maybe some of you love broccoli. Okay. I never told my kids to say thank you for broccoli, but for food, definitely. It's right and good. Kids need to be taught to say thank you. But we would all agree that saying the words thank you and being thankful are two different things. If you're a parent, you know the epic struggle of trying to get your toddler to say thank you for something they are not thankful for. They don't care about. And we say, say thank you. It's good to say thank you to grandma or grandpa or mom. The command in the Bible to give thanks is meant to sound like good news. It's meant to land on us as, oh, there must be something to say thanks for. It's meant to sound like good news. Somewhat like the command to rejoice in God. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. We all want to be happy. We all want to find joy. We all want to rejoice. And so the command, at least in theory, sounds good. We may not know how to get this joy or this rejoicing, but it sounds good to us. Well, thankfulness is like that. In fact, there is a really close connection between thankfulness and joy. Charles Spurgeon once said, A gratitude that is not attended with joy can scarcely be called gratitude at all. Again, trying to squeeze that thank you out of your child, and they finally say, thank you. Uh, It's not really gratitude, is it? We know that. It seems to me that giving thanks actually springs from a heart that is full of joy, like water flows down a river. Flows from a heart that's filled with joy, like water flows down a river. 
And therefore, when the springs of joy are not running down the mountain, the pools of gratitude run dry. Therefore, the Bible's, the biblical understanding of thanksgiving is one of responding to God's lavish goodness and grace toward us. Understanding who he is and what he has done for us in Christ specifically, and this spilling over, spilling over, flowing out of our hearts in lives of gratitude, words of gratitude. In one sense, the Christian life and all that God requires of us could be summed up in responding to the goodness and grace of God by giving thanks. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In all circumstances, give thanks. And then he says this, Because this is God's will for you in Christ. What's God's will for us in Christ? To give thanks in all circumstances. Every circumstance, whether things look very favorable. I mean, things are going well. Give thanks. And when things are not going so well, give thanks in all circumstances because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Apparently, we have a lot to be thankful for. And apparently, the one that we give thanks to Namely, God is deserving of our thanks at all times. Again, Spurgeon said on Thanksgiving, the constant tenor and spirit of our lives should be adoring gratitude, love, reverence, and thanksgiving to the Most High. And is that that the constant tenor and spirit of your life? One of Gratitude, deep gratitude to God for who he is and what he has done. Thanksgiving to him. Thankfulness is like a tire pressure gauge measuring how full your heart is of thoughts of God and his goodness. Right? You show me someone whose attention is turned to God in genuine thankfulness, and I will show you someone whose soul is very healthy. Those who are turned to God and see who he is, what he has done, all that he has done, this bountiful richness he has given us in Christ, those who have this toward God, they are in a good place, right? They are seeing what we need to see, who God is, what he has done on our behalf. On the other hand, someone who is turned inward on themselves. Martin Luther once said that the essence of sin, now you could, you could, this is, this is one of those statements, this is not the only thing that could be said about the essence of sin, okay? But he said the essence of sin is someone turning in on themselves. And turn, one who turns in on themselves and cannot look outside themselves and look up to God and say thanks to him, that is a very sick When describing evidences of being filled with the Spirit, Paul doesn't speak of ecstatic experiences or miraculous gifts. He talks about giving thanks. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord in, with your heart, giving thanks always. 
and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father through Jesus, because of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. This is, this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. On the other hand, we have to understand that the Bible grounds human sinfulness in ingratitude or a refusal to give thanks. This is made explicitly clear in Romans 1, verses 21 and 22. Romans 1 is, you know, verses 18 and following. It just lays out the problem of humanity. And it go, the progression goes from bad to worse. I guess you'd say the regression goes from bad to worse. But it starts here, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Giving thanks is not just a nice thing that nice people should do. Like, oh, you be a nice Christian, say thanks, be a thankful person. It is a weighty and a wonderful reality. A thankful person is one who is happy and humbled by the grace of God, and they express it constantly almost with lips of thanksgiving and a life of joyful obedience. Someone who is happy and humbled by the grace of God and giving thanks to God, they love to sing the words, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Not a debt that we're supposed to pay back to God, right? Because we never can. But in the sense or the realization that day after day after day after day, God is lavishing grace upon the undeserving like you and me through Jesus. And is turning back to God and saying, every day I'm a debtor to grace. Thank you, Lord. There's this uh, song, um, I think it's by Sovereign Grace music or something. I I think it's by them. It says, um, there's some lyrics that say, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The wrath of God completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. I was once your enemy and now I'm seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Day after day, humbled and happy in his grace. It's not even just that we are undeserving of his grace. It is that we are contra-deserving. Meaning, we deserve the contrary. We deserve judgment and condemnation. And he gives us grace. And if you know yourself, and you know that even daily, even in our best days, And we love the Lord and we want to obey him, but we still fall short of his perfect standard of glory and holiness. We just realize, oh, Lord, thank you for your grace in Christ. And therefore, thankfulness is more than just a private matter. Our gratitude is meant to go public. 
David, I, I love, and there's many Psalms like this, but David in Psalm 35, 18 says, I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. That's what we do here when we get together for worship. I hope you're not ashamed to let your voice be heard in worship. Like the person in front of you might think, oh, they're not a very good singer. Who cares? Right? I will give thanks to you in the great congregation. I mean, you should try to sing on key, but hey, if you can't, that's all right. I will give thanks to you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. Our thankfulness bears witness to what we say we believe about the gospel, doesn't it? Christians who are ungrateful and complainers do not make Christ look precious and amazing. On the other hand, a Christian whose heart is happy and full of deep and satisfying gratitude in Christ, they make him look like the treasure he really is. They help other people see he really is that amazing. So giving thanks is a huge thing to God because it magnifies him, it glorifies him, and because it comes from hearts that, are sat, that really are satisfied in him. True thanksgiving, of course. Not just saying the words. So, that's all introduction, okay? We're going to jump into Psalm 107 now. <laughs> Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2, gives us the command to, to give thanks to the Lord. Right? First, first line. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And then it gives us reasons why we should. And that's what we need, right? We need to be reminded of reasons why God is worthy of our thanksgiving. Why we should say thanks to the Lord. Why we should give him our hearts full of gratitude. You see, our hearts are kind of like a car that's out of alignment. Without remembering or being reminded of the reasons why we rejoice in the Lord, why we should give thanks, our hearts tend to veer toward the ditch of complaining. Like a car out of alignment, if you take the hands off the wheels, which you should never do, of course, but if you take both hands off the wheels, the car either slowly or quickly veers toward the ditch. So we need to be reminded of these things. We often forget the goodness of God. I just read Psalm 78, I think it was on Thursday morning. And over and over again, that's like this great chronicling of the people of Israel over and over and over again, forgetting what God had done for them. And so then they slide into sin and idolatry and all kinds of sins. Psalm 107 is another one of those Psalms that tells us, chronicles for us the people of God forgetting what God had done for them and so they slide into sin when we forget the goodness of God we veer into the ditch of complaining and self-exaltation and other sins so these two verses I want to look at today in Psalm 107 they're like nuclear powered for our help okay they're really helpful let me read them again. Psalm 107, 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed out of trouble. Notice first the emotion. What's the first word of verse one? Oh, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Do you have something delicious to eat on Thursday? And to say, that was good, would not have cut it. You had to say, oh, that was good. Oh, that was so good. The psalmist says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. He's, he's stirred up about this. There's something that he sees in the Lord that he wants to draw us in and say, give thanks to him. That's what the psalmist is doing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And then what he does is he gives us reasons why. He gives us two reasons. Actually, it's not even really two reasons. It's one reason. And then he gives us a reason for that reason. Okay, he says, give thanks to the Lord. And then reason number one, because he's good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord because he's good for he is good. Now, if he left it there, for he's good, and we should say amen, he is good. But there's, it's kind of ambiguous, right? And so the psalmist goes on. He elaborates. He is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord because he's good, and he's good because his love lasts forever. His steadfast love goes on and on forever and ever. This is where I want to spend the rest of our time. I want to, I want to just, just unpack what does it mean that his love, steadfast love endures forever. If I were to say, you know, you should really give thanks to God for his love. I don't think probably there's anyone here that would disagree with that. In fact, you might look at me and look what this look like. Well, duh, of course we should. But we are not told to thank God for a kind of generic, obscure love. But a love that we are to understand with some detail, with some definition. And that's what we see here. We're not told just, this, just to give thanks to God for this, this ambiguous love that's kind of out there. I'm not, not really sure exactly what that means, but we're to thank him for it. No, we're told about his love. His love is described in ways for us that we're to know. I was thinking yesterday, and one of my, one of my pet peeves, a soapbox I get on sometimes, is that the more definition that we have about God and about truth, the deeper our joy can be in him and in it. And so it's kind of like watching television high definition or back in the old days in, um, what do they call it? Low res or whatever, right? We want high definition, right? We want to see God and high definition and glory in him because of who he is, or in this case, because of his love. And so let's see how God's love is described here and let your heart be stirred to gratitude. That's my prayer today. So I want to, descri- I want to, I want to show you four descriptions of God's love. God's love is redeeming. 
God's love is loyal or faithful. Number three, God's love is enduring. And number four, God's love is soul satisfying. So let's just take them one at a time. Give thanks to the Lord for his redeeming love. Right? What does verse two say? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed out of trouble. So let the redeemed of the Lord say, oh, thank you, Lord, for your love. For God to redeem means that he pays a ransom for someone to rescue them and bring them to himself. That's what it means for for one to be redeemed. or That's what it means for God to redeem someone. God in his love has redeemed a people and has brought them to himself. Don't just think ambiguous, okay? God in, in his love has redeemed you and brought you to himself. I love the way this is described in Isaiah 43, verse 1, where God says, but now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Then he says this, you are mine. Now, in this context, when God says you are mine, he's not talking about just ownership because he's the creator. Of course, that's true. All things are his in that respect. But he's saying, you are my redeemed, chosen people that I am setting my affection upon. I love you. You are mine. For God to say that to a people is precious beyond measure. Do you feel that? It's amazing for God to say, you are my treasured people. Later in Isaiah, I think it's in chapter 64, God says, no longer will you be called forsaken but you will be called my delight is in her. God loves and delights in his people. He says, you are mine. I love you. I delight in you. To be redeemed means to be brought into covenantal relationship with God where he tenderly says, you're mine. I love uh, the way that it's, it's in Jer- Jeremiah 31 to 33, where it's unpacking the new covenant that we have in Christ. And not only does God say, you're mine, but he also says, and I am yours. I belong to you, right? He says, You'll be my, you will be my people and I will be your God. Precious beyond measure God's redeeming love. So he purchases us for himself. But redemption also means that we are rescued from something. Right? We, are, we are brought to God, but we are rescued from something. Verse 2 says, from trouble. From trouble. And we can recount all kinds of trouble that we have been helped from by God. The New Testament shows us our greatest trouble and the work of Christ to redeem us from it, though. And if 
if this is not the center of our understanding of what it means to be redeemed or what it means to be brought out of trouble, then our thanksgiving will be short-lived. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? It's the curse of God for lawbreakers. It is God's righteous judgment and curse for those who have broken his law. And who is that? All of mankind. We all have broken God's law. To be under the curse of God is to be utterly and eternally forsaken and damned by God. And Paul says, Jesus redeemed us from this curse by becoming a curse for us. Perhaps the cry of Jesus from the cross is coming to mind. It comes to my mind. Remember what Jesus cried on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason Jesus cried these words from the cross is because as he bore our sin and our guilt and our shame and our condemnation, he was forsaken by God. At that moment, he was forsaken by God, right? The father turns his face, turned his face away. And Jesus was experiencing the curse of God, God forsakenness. And Paul says he did that for us. He did that for us. I mean, of course he did this because of his love for the father. He did everything the father required him to do out of love for the father. But, but, but Jesus said, or excuse me, Paul said in Galatians 3 that he bore the curse or became a curse for us. In love for us. He was forsaken and endured the divine curse. There's an old hymn called There is a Fountain. And it has a verse that says, Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme, and it shall be till I die. Amen? Do you see by faith what, what the flowing wound of Jesus supplies for you? If you do, then you'll sing of his redeeming love. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his redeeming love. But there's more here. We are to give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love or faithful love. And I get that from this Hebrew word that's translated steadfast love. Give thanks to the Lord for his, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This word that's translated, I'm working in the ESV here. Um, Steadfast love here is translated loving kindness in the New American Standard. I think it's just translated love in in the NIV. Um, It's the Hebrew word hesed which is an amazing word. It's used all the time in the Old Testament. 
there probably is no more significant Old Testament description of how God relates with his people than this word hesed. Translators seem to be unsettled as to how to translate this word in different texts. Sometimes it's translated things like mercy, other, other places, loyalty, faithfulness, duty. But hesed combines two ideas. It's the idea of love and loyalty. So R.C. Sproul said that probably the best way to translate this word is loyal love. God's loyal love for his people. And what's so amazing, what is so dumbfounding is that God's love is loyal to people who are not loyal to him. It it does not depend upon our level of loyalty to him. Praise God. In fact, the rest of of Psalm 107, we see God's people in trouble over and over and over again because of their own sin, because of their own failure. And yet over and over and over again, God rescues them. So his loyalty to them is not based on their performance, but based on something stronger, namely God's loyalty to his own name and to have a people for his glory. He will have a people for his glory and he will do whatever it takes to bring us to himself and have make us that people for his own glory. You and I, neither one of us can stand before the bar of God's perfect standard and have a claim on his love. His loyalty to his redeemed people is first and foremost, a loyalty to himself. Remember how Moses pleaded with God when God was going to destroy the people of Israel. He said, God, what will the nations think that you were unable to bring these people out and bring them into the land? Moses appealed to the father based on his own name and glory. One of the clearest ways God demonstrates the loyalty of his love is that he pursues his people. God's love is not a love that just offers and then waits. But he pursues. You guys know the story of Jesus when he uh, is telling a parable about a shepherd. and He's got 99 sheep on the side of the mountain. And he leaves the 99 to go after one stray sheep. And when, he, when, he gets, when the shepherd finds that sheep, he puts it over his shoulders and he comes back rejoicing. If you here today are believing in Christ, it is because Jesus, the good shepherd, came looking for you. And he found you when you were not looking for him. And he brought you to himself. And he brought you to the Father. And he brought you into the fold with other sheep. But it's not just in salvation that God pursues his people. In fact, David says in Psalm 23 that God's love pursues his people all the rest of their days. Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy or steadfast love, this word has said, surely goodness and steadfast love 
shall follow me all the days of my life. I remember years ago reading a commentary on that, on Psalm 23. And the commentator said, goodness and steadfast love are like the hounds of heaven pursuing us all the way to the end of our lives. Someone might say, I don't feel like God is pursuing me. I feel like God is distant from me. Well, let's not put God in a box or assume that you need to have some kind of angelic visitation or hear his audible voice in order for him to pursue you. You might be waiting a long time if you're waiting for that. Let me ask this. Have you ever had a Bible verse plop into your mind? seemingly out of the blue. And it was just what you needed to hear. That's the Lord pursuing you. What did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? He said, he will bring to your remembrance all the things that I have spoken to you. Have you ever been in a bad place, not walking with Christ or just in a funk and a friend reached out to you or pursued you and lovingly reproved you and appealed to you to come back to Christ, to come back to the Lord. That's the Lord pursuing you. Have you ever been discouraged and received what seemed to be an unexpected phone call or text or email? And it was so encouraging. Has that ever happened to you? That's the Lord pursuing you. That's him coming after you. That's him caring for you. That's him loving you. Have you ever been prayed for and the Lord just touched you in a powerful way? That's him pursuing you. Have have you ever been reading the Bible and you've read this passage a dozen times, but this one phrase or this one sentence or this one word even jumps out and grabs you by the collar and shakes some sense into you. That is the Lord pursuing you. That's, he comes to us. He pursues us all the rest of our days. And he does it in a thousand other ways. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love. Next, give thanks to the Lord for his enduring love, his love that endures. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. God's love is not just for the future. It is indeed for the future. But it endures from now into the future forever and ever and ever. I love the word endures. It's such a strong word. If someone has great endurance, they can run for a long time. Right? That would not be me. But they can run for a long time. God's love has great endurance. It will not be outlasted by anything in this world. No trial you go through, no hardship you're facing right now, no battle against sin, it will not outlast those things. His love endures forever. It will not outlast painful trials. Romans, 5, Romans 8, 35 to 39. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
excuse me, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His love endures. His love is strong. It has staying power. It will not be outlasted by the worst of trials we face. Can it endure our battle against sin? I say battle against sin because the Christian is to battle sin. We're not to settle in with it. Will it endure our battle against sin? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it will. I love the song we sing. The name of the song is not in my mind right now, but our sin is great. Your love is greater. And it is. Our sin is great. We should not belittle that. We should not, we should not pretend it isn't. But his love is greater than our sin. What about old age? I'm not that old, but I'm 40 now. I know. So I think about being old more than I did 10 years ago. Will his love outlast our struggle with old age? You better believe it will. Isaiah 46.1, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. What about death? Is his love more durable, stronger than death? Oh, yes, of course it is. Song of Songs talks about a love that is stronger than death. Paul actually says for the Christian who is loving Christ, believing in Christ, that death itself is gain. Death is gain for those who are in Christ. Because God in his love, his love endures, right? God in his love will bring us to himself. Paul says to die is to be with the Lord, and that is far better. Now, I don't know how many American Christians think like that. I know that I need to more. I know that I do. That death is gain because of our loving Savior who will bring us to himself. Closer communion with Christ. That's what death means for the Christian. And then forever, we will enjoy and savor and be thrilled with the steadfast love of the Lord. His love endures forever. Psalm 147, I believe, every verse ends with his steadfast love is everlasting. His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love endures forever, forever, forever. And because God is inexhaustible in his glory, we will never be bored with his love for all eternity. It will never get boring. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his enduring love. Finally, give thanks to the Lord for his soul-satisfying love. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord. To the Lord. Not just ambiguous, not just a blank thanks, but thanks to the Lord. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he talks about, there's a, there's a book on the goodness of God. And he says the goodness of God in the scriptures, probably the best way to unpack what that means is that God is rich in his generosity toward us. He gives. He gives. Right? And that's, we've seen that all throughout this, this message. He gives. And what God gives us, the best thing God could give us, is himself. To give us himself, to give us himself in fullness so that our hearts are full of him, so that we don't come to God and say, God, I want you to do these six things for me. You 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 can kind of keep yourself to yourself. Just give me these things. No, we want him. He is our greatest joy. He is our heart's satisfaction. God's love for us and I'm stealing this phrase. It's not, Piper doesn't say it just like this, but John Piper, this, this is coming from him. God's love for us is not him making much of us, but enabling us from the heart to enjoy making much of him forever. And yet often we think that love finds its destination on me, but it's meant to lift us from ourselves and turn us to God and to find our joy and our satisfaction and say, oh God, thank you for your steadfast love. To come and drink from the everlasting fountain of joy and satisfaction. That's, that's, That's God's love toward us. He's bringing us into this. And then with hearts full of joy to look up to him with complete joy and say, thank you. Oh, thank you, Lord. Let Psalm 90 verse 14 be your prayer. Moses wrote Psalm 90. He said this, this was his prayer. So it's a good prayer. I mean, God, this is inspired, right? So it's one that God ordains. It's okay, we can pray this and expect God to answer it. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy me, fill me to overflowing with your steadfast love. Satisfy me in the morning right now, every morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let's pray that. Let's seek the Lord that we would turn outside of ourselves and look to him and say, you are amazing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed out of trouble. So do you know this redeeming, loyal, enduring, soul-satisfying love of the Lord? Do you know it? 
And if, and if you just say, I'm not sure I do, then it's offered to you today to know it in fullness. It's found in Christ alone, in him alone. And, and don't, you know, if, if you're thinking, yeah, I, I mean, I know that he loves me. I know that he loves me. I, you know, I've been a Christian a long time or whatever. But is your heart full of this love? The satisfying, enduring, redeeming, faithful love for his people. You can. And if you would say, yes, I do. I'm about ready to explode. Then give thanks to the Lord. For his goodness. For his steadfast love that endures forever. For his redeeming love. Give thanks to him. Let your heart, let your life be defined by one of gratitude. And this is just coming to mind. And, and, and one, let me just give you one practical thing to do. Okay. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on spiritual depression. Basically, it's a, it's a book on uh, Psalm 42 and 43. And one thing he said to do in there is he said, one problem we have as Christians or people probably, but Christians too, is that we spend too much time listening to ourselves rather than speaking to ourselves. It might sound kind of confusing, but he's going somewhere with that. He says, so what we need to do is get in the practice of preaching God's truth to our own hearts. And so I encourage you, right? Pray what Moses prayed. Satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love and then, and then preach to yourself reasons to be satisfied in him and to give him thanks and to rejoice in him. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would satisfy us even this morning. It's still morning time.